Um, I'm all alone up here without my friends, but I'll try to cope. Um, I wanted to talk about a practice I've been doing for some time now that has borne a lot of fruit for me. And um, I understand this practice in the frame of what could be called evolutionary neuropsychology. And since this is a so-called science retreat here at Spirit Rock, um, both the practice itself and my framework of understanding about it seemed useful to talk about here. And the practice is simply mindfulness of craving, broadly defined, which I'll talk about more about, um, and also mindfulness of the absence of craving. And then, in particular, mindfulness of and cultivation of underlying experiences that, in my view, help undo the causes of craving. They help withdraw fuel from the fires of craving and also uh, encourage and cultivate a mind that rests increasingly in peace, contentment, and love instead of fear, frustration, and heartache. So I want to talk about that with you. And um, so in terms of that, I asked myself, you know, what got me interested in this was, what in the world is going on in the brain of a Buddha? Or a brain of an arahant, or someone far along in practice, or ourselves in one of those moments where, whoosh, we seem to be far along in practice, at least for that time. What's going on there? Uh, As you probably know, Buddhism is fundamentally about processes and causes. It's not about static, stuck stuff, processes and causes. So in terms of the processes, what's going on in the mind and the brain of the Buddha By definition, it's a mind that is free of hatred, greed, um, hate, or aggression toward others, ill will, and uh, delusion. Uh, Or, as I put it, a mind free of fear, frustration, um, heartache, and delusion. What causes that? What in the world causes that? As you probably know, the structure of the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering, dukkha. Un, unsatisfactoriness. Uh, you may know that the root of the word for dukkha in Pali, the language of early Buddhism, is two, two sounds, de and ka. And de means bad or wonky, essentially. And ka is the meaning of an axle and the hub of a wheel. So basically, dukkha is a wobbly grinding. That's suffering, sometimes translated in English. So um, the question then becomes, you know, what causes dukkha? That's the first noble truth. And in the Buddha's propositions, which are entirely psychological, he says that dukkha, uh, ranging from subtle to intense, um, arises due to causes. And those causes can be summarized in the word tanha, or thirst, or craving. So the Buddha has a mind in which there isn't dukkha, and there isn't tanha, or craving, And the process in the Four Noble Truths is to move from the first and the second Noble Truths of suffering and craving to the third and fourth Noble Truths, um, less craving to the point of no craving in the third Noble Truth and the cultivation of the path in the fourth Noble Truth that embodies that gradual reduction of craving and suffering and leads to its ultimate abandonment and freedom from it. That's the overall structure. Okay? How do we do that while still engaged with life? In particular, 
while still encountering things that are unpleasant, pleasant, heartfelt, and neutral? How do we actually do it? What causes craving? And how can we change those underlying causes? So I consider that question in the frame of what could be called neurodharma. In other words, what are the underlying causes in nature, in our nervous system, in our biology, in the body of um, the craving that causes suffering? And how, on this retreat, can we gradually use these awarenesses, these insights, to gradually um, disengage from craving in its various forms, especially its subtler forms, uh, which are the most challenging, and also increasingly have a mind that's full instead of what the Buddha talked about as that highest happiness, which is peace. So in this frame of so-called neurodharma, mind is taken as a natural process. The Buddha engaged the mental causes of suffering and the end of suffering. That's what he was aware of. But now, 2,500 years later, we have a lot more understanding of the underlying neural, biological, material causes of suffering in its end. And so, in that context, you know, we're often told to be mindful of the body. Obviously, that's useful. But if you flip it around, we have a body full of mind. In other words, the body, particularly the nervous system, particularly headquartered by the brain, is continually constraining constructing and conditioning our experience of physical reality, form, our sense of it as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, the feeling tone of experience. Our perceptions are being continually conditioned by this underlying physical neural substrate or basis. Our perception of things as, you know, banana or tree. Uh, And also, of course, the underlying nervous system is the basis of, and is, as I said, constraining, constructing, and conditioning uh, what are called the formations. Our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, our hopes, our dreams, our sorrows. And in fact, this underlying physical process in the body is the basis for awareness. If you um, change things in the brain, people fall asleep. If you change other things in the brain, they wake up. If you bang the brain hard, you knock people out. If you give them caffeine, they stay more alert. There's an underlying physical basis, even for something as remarkable and ineffable as awareness itself. So this is the natural frame. Now myself, I think there are supernatural and transcendental mysteries and factors outside the natural frame. But the Buddha primarily focused inside the natural frame And one certainly doesn't have to believe in supernatural or transcendental factors to appreciate the ways in which our enjoyments and our sufferings arise in the framework of underlying physical, material, neurological causes. So what can we learn about craving by looking at those underlying embodied causes? So I want to talk about what craving is in the framework of neuropsychology. The the, uh, word in Pali for craving, as I said earlier, is tanha, which translates as one of its roots is thirst. Thirst is a drive state. 
It's based on an underlying sense of deficit or disturbance. Deficit or disturbance. Thirst is regulated in the brain by the hypothalamus, this very ancient part of the brain that sits right on top of the, of the brainstem. Most of uh, the stuff in the brain um, comes in twos, sort of like Noah's Ark, you know, the paired animals. But the really ancient stuff comes just one by one, and there's just one hypothalamus in the brain, regulating drives like, like thirst or hunger. So thirst, craving, the second noble truth, it's based on an underlying sense of deficit or disturbance in terms of meeting our core needs. What are your core needs? What are your fundamental needs in an embodied sense? The fundamental needs of... um, Actually, I'm going to get to that in a second. So I'm going to talk about needs in a second, but first I just want to highlight deficit and disturbance causing craving. And how can we replace deficit and disturbance in our own experience with a sense of fullness and balance instead? So I want to give you a little framework for how your brain got built. All right? uh, this is a simplification for those neuroscientists in the room who will be writing me emails after this retreat. <laughs> I hope. Okay. So um, basically... To kind of simplify, a 600 million year process, speaking of Grateful Dead lyrics, what a long, strange trip it's been. (laughs) So, the house of the brain, your brain, my brain, essentially was built in three floors, from the bottom up, like a house. First floor of the brain is the brain stem. Second floor of the house of the brain is the subcortical regions that that include structures like the amygdala, plural, there are two amygdalas, thalamuses, um, basal ganglia, uh, hippocampus, and so forth. And then sitting on top of that is the third floor of the house of the brain, the cortex. These three floors of the house of the brain are loosely associated with the reptilian, mammalian, and primate human stages of evolution. As the brain evolved, so did his capacities to meet the three fundamental needs of any animal, including a big complicated one like us, for safety, satisfaction, and connection. Animals like us achieve safety through avoiding harms. We take care of our needs for satisfaction, broadly defined, through approaching rewards. And we manage our needs for connection through attaching to others. So we have avoiding and approaching and attaching, managing safety, satisfaction, and connection. And uh, those um, systems, avoiding, is activated particularly, gets engaged when we experience something is unpleasant or could be. So avoiding harms is a response to the unpleasant, actual or imagined, Um, feeling tone, it's sometimes called, or hedonic tone of experience. In Pali, the vedness of experience, which are, as many of you know, uh, the focus of the second establishment or the second foundation of mindfulness. So we have avoiding as it gets engaged, you know, when we experience something as unpleasant, basically to achieve safety in a word. We have approaching that gets engaged when we start to experience things as pleasant, to manage our needs for satisfaction. 
and we have attaching to others engaged when we experience things as heartfelt. And when we experience things as neutral, um, what we tend to do is move on and get better, right? Or is this a trick? You know, is there something unpleasant around the corner? So before going on, I want to highlight something I'm doing here that you're probably noticing already. I'm really emphasizing the primacy for human beings of our needs for connection and the primacy of the attaching system. Now, certainly the Buddha himself emphasized this, this aspect of our life, our social, interpersonal, relational life. Uh, You may know the passage in which he was speaking with his attendant and cousin Ananda, who was the Buddha's primary companion for 20 or 30 years. And um, at one point, Ananda was looking around at all the various monks um, gathered there. Um, You could generalize this to practitioners in general. And Ananda said to the Buddha, "Uh, look, look at uh, our companions here. This is half the holy life. The implication being that the other half is some kind of internal process. And the Buddha famously replied, not so, Ananda, not so. This, this relational space, this field of practice and this support for practice is the whole of the holy life. Recent scholarship um, has uh, made a very plausible argument, plausible case, that the Buddha clearly taught during his life, as best we know, as best we know, that the Buddha clearly taught during his life that love, when perfected, is a fully sufficient path to awakening. The scholarship indicates that people after the Buddha died basically kind of misunderstood that, got very preoccupied with what became increasingly dry analyses of the mind, which then led to the uh, Mahayana um, reformation, if you will, much as you know, Buddhism was kind of like to the Jains and early Hinduism, what Protestantism was to uh, Catholicism. Uh, in some ways, the Mahayana was to the early teachings of the Buddha, what he was to the earlier Jains. And people have pointed out that if uh, the Buddha had been more correctly understood in terms of the emphasis he placed on love, broadly defined as a field and a support of practice, um, there wouldn't have been such a need for this later Mahayana Reformation. In any case, the point here is the emphasis on relationships. And um, I think that human attaching, broadly taken into account, cannot be reduced to some mere arithmetic, some mere combination of uh, avoiding pain and approaching pleasure. I also think that it's plausible that we are beginning to evolve a fourth feeling tone, a fourth vedna, a fourth what in psychology is called hedonic tone of experience that cannot be reduced to simply some combination of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And I think that this fourth feeling tone, which for lack of a better term I call heartfelt, is the basis for engaging the attaching system much as pleasant is the basis for engaging the approaching system and unpleasant is the basis for engaging the avoiding system. And to plant a seed and to be a little provocative, in these considerations from time to time I ask myself, I wonder how the Dharma, the truth, 
And also I wonder how upaya, skillful means, would have been described and as far as skillful means are concerned, developed if, hypothetically, the Buddha had been a woman. It's difficult to imagine that in the time of the Buddha, but it's an interesting consideration. In any case here, clearly we have, in a summary kind of way, the inner lizard, mouse, and monkey. And the little inner lizard, metaphorically and actually, is very focused around safety and avoiding arms and dealing with what's unpleasant. The little mouse wants to be fed and is organized around satisfaction and approaching rewards in response to what's pleasant. And the little inner monkey, if you will, is very focused on relationships, uh, gets engaged when we experience things as heartfelt, and wants to have connection. That's a kind of a simplification. So how can we then take this loose model, which is a way of thinking about um, the Dharma, and be practical with it? Well, the brain basically has two ways of going about meeting these three core needs, safety, satisfaction, and connection. The lizard, the mouse, and the monkey have two ways of being. On the one hand, when we experience that our core needs are met, because I'm asking myself, what's going on in the brain of a Buddha? When we experience that our core needs are met, in other words, when we have the underlying causes of fullness rather than deficit, and balance rather than disturbance, when that's the case, the brain and body, the nervous system and bodies of, of animals, particularly you know, more complex animals like mammals, default to a kind of resting state in which the body repairs itself, it recovers from bursts of stress, and it conserves resources. And in this resting state, this kind of sustainable equilibrium condition, our home base, in terms of safety, satisfaction, and connection, in broad terms, the mind your mind, is colored with a sense of peace, contentment, and love. I call this, and other people have used the term, the responsive mode of the brain. I call it the green zone. That's our home base. On the other hand, when we engage one or more of our core needs, safety, satisfaction, and connection, unpleasant, pleasant, heartfelt, when we engage one or more of these needs, with an underlying sense of deficit or disturbance, the brain of a human, as well as other animals, has a second setting. I call it, and others do as well, the reactive mode, in which the body fires up for fighting and fleeing, or the body freezes, kind of the human equivalent of playing dead, and gets immobilized. In this state, in the red zone, Uh, which is characterized by a sense of stress and stress hormones and related activations, in the red zone, long-term building projects in the body are put on hold, like strengthening the immune system. Resources are typically burned faster than they're taken in. (coughs) And the mind is colored in terms of safety, satisfaction, and connection with a variety of things, which I summarize as fear, frustration, and heartache. If you were to kind of summarize the third and second noble truths, 
and neuropsychological terms. That's what I'm trying to do here. You know, the responsive mode, the green zone, is your brain on the third noble truth. You know, like those MTV ads, this is your brain on drugs, you know, the egg frying in the, in the pan, in the grease. Um, and the, your, the reactive mode, the red zone, is a brain full of craving based on an underlying sense of deficit and disturbance. This for me has become a very useful map and a very useful framework for mindfulness of experience moment to moment to moment and then, as appropriate, gently disengaging from craving, especially unnecessary craving. And also gradually cultivating um, a deepening, deepening, a deepening and deepening sense of the responsive mode so that it becomes increasingly the basis from which one can deal with life's challenges, including things that are really unpleasant. We don't have a choice about being a body full of mind. We don't have a choice about the brainstem subcortex cortex, reptilian, mammalian, primate human stages of evolution. We don't have a choice about our three core needs. The Buddha had those three core needs as well. We also express those needs in terms of our commitments to others. We want to protect others from harms. We want others to have rewards, wholesome rewards of various kinds. We want others to feel loved and included and cherished. Right? We, we can't get around those needs. In many ways, uh, the Buddha's middle way was a rejection of the Jain uh, notion of his time that through radical asceticism, even asceticism that led to one's own death, that one could bypass these needs. We have these needs, and we have this embodiment, what will we do with it? So we don't have choices about these needs and these, this embodiment. What we do have choice about is what setting we're in, how we go about meeting these different needs. One thing that's important to take into account here is what scientists call the negativity bias of the brain. And let me explain that. The responsive mode, peace, contentment, and love, being at rest, being in equilibrium, that's our home base. That's where we go when we're not disturbed or there isn't a lack or a shortage. That's really good news. The problem is that the brain is very good at learning from reactive mode experiences. Once burned, twice shy. And the brain is relatively inefficient at learning from green zone experiences. It's relatively poor at learning from experiences of calming, easing, relaxing, sense of strength, which all of which support us in feeling safe in the responsive mode. The brain is poor at really registering experiences of satisfaction, fulfillment, enoughness, um, gratitude, gladness, accomplishment in terms of our satisfaction needs. And the brain is also relatively poor at really registering connection, compassion, 
love, feeling appreciated by others. The reason for that is that our, as our ancestors evolved, they needed to both get um, rewarding experiences, call them carrots, and they needed to avoid sticks, like predators, natural hazards, aggression in their, their bands. The difference, though, is that if you fail to get a carrot today, you'll have a chance at one tomorrow. But if you fail to avoid that stick today, that predator, that natural hazard, whack. No more um, carrots forever. You can see it on retreat. You know, we've been here pushing 24 hours and probably many, many moments of ease, fine, it's okay. And then a few moments of someone cut in front of you in line right? Or your mind started spinning out and it couldn't go back to that really tranquil, beautiful place. Or maybe you were talking with someone or there was some kind of communication and there was that little part that rubbed you the wrong way. And boom, that's what we fasten upon. That's what we learn from. Our experiences are continually leaving traces in our brain. That's how the brain learns. It's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity. The problem is that our reactive mode, red zone, second noble truth, tanha and dukkha experiences leave deep traces quickly. And our responsive mode, green zone, third noble truth and fourth noble truth experiences need some help to really sink in. So I want to talk about how to do that in practical ways. To do that, I need to create a bit of a frame here. I call it in the garden of the mind. What I mean by that is that I think there are just three ways to practice. There's just three ways to engage the mind skillfully inside the natural frame. In the first way to engage the mind, we just be with what's there. We experience the experience, we feel the feelings, Hopefully we do this with mindful awareness, hopefully with other factors like self-compassion and curiosity, friendliness for ourselves. Maybe we investigate beneath the surface. Maybe we sense down what's younger, what's more fundamental, what's deeper here. We're not playing therapist with ourselves. We're just simply disentangling the tapestry of the mind. The Buddha emphasized and talked about a lot, disentangling. Okay, teasing apart the elements. The Buddha was an early pre-modern postmodernist because he was constantly focused on <laughs> deconstructing of the mind. So that's what we do. And in the process of that, we're not making efforts to change the con- to change what's in the mind. But and it may change, but we're not trying to make it change. That's the first way to engage the mind. We just be with it. The second way to engage the mind is we reduce the negative. We um, let it go, we abandon it, we prevent it, we try to relax tension in the body, we try to uh, guard the sense doors, as Anushka said earlier, in terms of preventing uh, problematic things from happening, in terms of where we rest our gaze. Um, We let go of feelings that are burdensome. We don't suppress them, we release them. 
we also try to see through thoughts or beliefs that are not true or harmful for us and other people. That's the second way to engage the mind, reducing the negative. And the third way to engage the mind is to increase the positive, to maintain it when it's present, to cause it to arise, and to protect it and even increase it you know, when it's there. So for example, we might deliberately cultivate compassion or loving kindness. Or we might try to help ourselves really register it when, let's say, a teacher, um, like Anushka earlier, talked about exploring sleepiness in different ways. Uh, We cultivate, let's say, wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise concentration, wise action, wise livelihood. This is the third way to engage the mind. If the mind is like a garden, uh, we can witness it, letting it, you know, just being with it. We can pull weeds or plant flowers in the garden of the mind. Or in six words, let be, let go, let in. I think that's, those are our options, more or less. Um, you've probably notice that uh, the second and third ways to engage the mind are the essence of wise effort, reducing the negative and increasing the positive. Now, a key point here, I think that two points. First, being with the mind, I think, is primary. It's the foundation of the other two. It's also our last resort, because sometimes we just can't let it go. We can't or we can't let it in. All we can do is ride out the storm, trying to not add fuel to that fire. That's the best we can do. Just feel it. As Pema Chodron says, bear it. Yet just being with the mind alone is not enough. Even someone who is, of course, uh, a great advocate of being with one's experience, says the Buddha, um, also allocated uh, much of the other elements of the Noble Eightfold Path to various aspects of cultivation of the positive and abandonment and reduction of the negative. Second point is that mindfulness is to be present in all three ways of engaging the mind. And a kind of, I think, inadvertent error has crept into a lot of mindfulness circles in the last 20 or 30 years in which mindfulness has become equivalent to just being with the mind. We are to be mindful under all conditions, the Buddha says. Walking, eating, talking, doing emails, being glad we're not doing emails, using the bathroom, giving a talk. Um, If we're just being with the mind, particularly in its most radical forms of choiceless awareness. Little but mindfulness is present, which is, I think, how this error has occurred of conflating the two. But even there, other factors need to be present as well to sustain being with the mind. And as I've said, mindfulness is to be present in all three ways of engaging the mind. So it's in this context now that I want to talk about um, mindfulness of craving, and the cultivation of the causes of its undoing.
I should add that there's a traditional saying, uh, Wesser and Nishka probably know who said it. I can't blanking on the source. A summarized practice says, know the mind, shape the mind, free the mind. Knowing the mind is being with it. Um, shaping the mind is wise effort, letting go and letting in, releasing and receiving. And then there's the fourth way to engage the mind, which is perhaps outside the natural frame, if we're to take the Buddha at his word when he talked about Nibbana, in which we free the mind altogether. So, how do we abandon or reduce deficit and disturbance in ways large and small? And how do we replace deficit with fullness and disturbance with balance? I think there are three levels to this. It's not the whole of practice, but I think it's a big piece of it. It's interesting that... um, I think sometimes about the Four Noble Truths is sort of like, in many Buddhist circles, it's like a needlepoint on the wall, sort of on a sampler. That we kind of, oh yeah, it's like the Pledge of Allegiance we utter mindlessly, at least I did when I was in school. Uh, we just sort of say it, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, if we take it seriously, the Buddha's encouragement, I think, you know, from my own reading of the Pali Canon, in English, not in Pali, um, is that he's really saying, look, you can do this. You really can reduce the causes of craving. That's the point. Maybe not perfect awakening in this lifetime, but a long way toward it. Uh, And you really can cultivate the third noble truth, the cessation of the craving that causes suffering. So it's in that context, you know, that I'm going for it here. So I think of this practice that I'm talking about now in in kind of three, three levels, if you will. The first level, and you can do this on this retreat, you can do it this evening if you like, is to look for, first of all, is to be mindful of more or less craving, especially subtleties, like more or less aversion to what's unpleasant, more or less anxiety about it, more or less anger at it, more or less helplessness in the face of uh, the unpleasant which challenges us in terms of safety. Attracting that. This is kind of a version of the third foundation of mindfulness, where we're just observing, you know, is there, is there more or less um, hatred, the Buddha would call it. I might call it fear. Um, also, in terms of our needs for satisfaction, mindfulness of craving, is there more or less uh, disappointment, frustration, feeling thwarted, or gratitude, fullness, enoughness, right? And then also in terms of um, our our social needs, is there more or less a sense of hurt, loneliness, inadequacy, exclusion, or more or less sense of connection, compassion for oneself and for others? And then in addition to that mindfulness, when there are natural opportunities for a greater sense of safety, summarized in an umbrella word of peace, more opportunities for more relaxation, more sense of really feeling all right, more sense of protection, 
more sense of letting go of exaggerated sense of threat. When you have that opportunity for a responsive mode experience in the safety system, really let it sink in. Take the extra dozen or two dozen seconds with it so it registers in your brain. It's not a form of craving to it or attaching to it. It's a kind of wise, self-compassionate openness to and registering of a beneficial experience that establishes fullness and balance ever more deeply woven into the fabric of your brain instead of deficit and disturbance in terms of safety, for example. Key experiences, as I said, like safety, protection, relaxation, um, being all right. In terms of the satisfaction system, when we're experiencing um, just ordinary, it's in the flow. We're not trying to make it up. It's authentic. A sense of the enoughness of this moment. Enough air to breathe. Enough water to drink. Still enough food in the bowl. Um, able to get to some place on time. Able to accomplish it. In other words, fullness and balance in terms of satisfaction. Enjoy it. Stay with it. Help it last 5, 10, 20 seconds in a row. In the famous saying, neurons that fire together wire together. Help those neurons keep firing a dozen or two dozen seconds in a row or even longer. It's a kind of absorption practice, if you think of it in meditative terms, where if the opportunity is present to disengage from craving in terms of any one of these three systems, really take it. Why not? And then last, in terms of the attaching system, the social system, connection. When we have experiences of warmth and kindness for ourselves or others, or feeling the warmth and kindness from others, or bringing to mind those who love us or care about us, you know that it's authentic, it's real. There too, ah, an opportunity to take that extra 5, 10, 20 seconds to stay with it, to keep those neurons firing together so they wire together, and it sinks into the brain. And what's interesting is that in the face of the natural, understandable objection, but isn't that a form of attachment? Actually, cultivation undoes craving. As we repeatedly internalize the felt sense of core needs met, the felt sense, in umbrella terms, of peace, contentment, and love, there's more and more of an internalized and increasingly unconditional sense of fullness and balance inside instead of deficit or disturbance. And we meet life's challenges on the basis of this fullness and balance inside. It's a little bit like deepening the keel of a sailboat. I don't know if you've ever sailed. I've sailed somewhat, and I've sailed in a boat with no keel, and I capsized it. Whoop! And I learned two lessons. One, sail in boats with a keel, especially when you're a lame sailor. And two, buckle your life jacket before you fall into the Pacific Ocean. All right. So um, if you think about it, when we don't have much sense internalized of fullness and balance, we're like a sailboat with no keel. We have to either be really careful and play really safe and really small, you know, never leave the swimming pool in the backyard, or if we go out into the world and it's an all-challenging, knocks us over. 
as we repeatedly internalize in ordinary, authentic, typically mild, typically brief ways, 5, 10, 20 seconds at a time usually, experiences of wholeness and fullness and wholesomeness and peace, contentment, and love, as we do that again and again and again, and we wire those resources, those inner strengths, increasingly into ourselves in a very natural, embodied process, it's like deepening the keel of a boat so that we can dream bigger dreams, dare more greatly, as Brene Brown talks about it, and sail more out into the deep, dark blue. And when storms come, as they inevitably do, they don't knock us over. Or if they do bang us hard, we ride ourselves more rapidly. So that's the first suggestion in terms of practice. Mindfulness of more or less craving, and in particular, um, a wise and self-caring internalization of authentic experiences of the responsive mode, the beginnings of the third noble truth. Second suggestion I have is to be mindful of what I call delusional craving or auto-craving. Have you ever noticed that you're perfectly safe and yet you're still a little anxious? Right? Ever notice that you've got plenty, it's all good, and your mind is still scanning for something else to want? It's kind of a human equivalent of foraging, like animals will do in the wild, even though their bellies are full. And then have you also ever noticed that the truth is, you know, you're connected, you're loved, you love others, and yet there's always that uneasiness in relationship. You liked me yesterday. What do you think about my Dharma talk today? Right? You can see that. And I think that's because um, if you imagine animals back in evolution who are all zenned out, you know, just all cool, it's all groovy, totally chill, safe, satisfied, fed, you know, connected, chump, they got eaten. The ones that live to see the sunrise and pass on their genes were anxious, right? And kind of driven and always kind of uneasy in relationships. And we have that today in our mind. It's, a, it's delusional craving. It's effective in harsh conditions in terms of keeping animals alive. But for us today, it uh, creates a lot of excess suffering and a lot of needless interpersonal conflict. So you might explore, as I have, and enjoy the practice of continually, or routinely rather, um, being mindful of this kind of auto-craving, baseless craving. And instead, if you like, you can play around with three little practices. One, you can actually notice that almost always you're basically all right right now in, in terms of safety, in terms of dealing with the unpleasant. Again and again, it's actually kind of hard to sustain the experience of being basically all right right now. You may not have been all right in the past. You may not be all right in the future. But right now, at least, you're basically all right. There's enough air to breathe. No shark is chewing on the leg. Um, it's not, we're not in the moment of dying. We're not in agonizing pain. Nothing terrible has happened in this moment. We're actually basically all right right now. And now. And now. And now. Second practice in terms of satisfaction that cuts through delusional craving is to play around with the sense of being entirely, already entirely satisfied. It's an interesting experience. Enough food, 
enough reward. It would be nice to have more. It's, it's okay to aspire for more, to continue engaging in life, but on the basis of fullness already. Um, I think it's James Barra's son who talks about enoughness, or he has some great phrase about it. Um, that's a great practice as well. Already entirely satisfied as an authentic experience, exploring that. What's within reach? And then last, in terms of uh, connection, attaching to others, if you like, playing around with the experience of feeling loved enough already. Wow. Liked and loved enough already. Much as we would wish for a friend that they be loved more or in even more special ways, it's okay to wish that for ourselves as long as we're skillful about it. But there can also be the sense of, wow, I'm already profoundly connected connected to nature, connected to family and kin and friends and all kinds of other people, connected to culture. And probably, sometimes it's not true. I'm not talking about falsifying anything or making anything up that's not true. But if it's actually accessible to feel already entirely satisfied or to feel authentically liked or loved enough already, that's a really interesting practice in terms of again and again and again, deconditioning delusional craving. So that's the second thought, second suggestion here. And then the last one is, in some ways, the most challenging. It's the deepest of all. The Buddha pointed out that because experiences are constantly changing, no experience is capable of reliable, sustainable satisfaction. There's a kind of inherent incapacity for experience to be reliably fulfilling and satisfying. And that leads to a kind of automatic desire, craving, for somehow to slow down experience, stabilize it, even though it's changing, and essentialize it, even though every aspect of experience is connected to everything else. And that's deeply frustrating and a major source of suffering. So what's the solution? The solution is not, the Buddha taught, to um, halt the presses, to stop the flow of experience. The solution is not either to um, you know, find some way to make experience reliably a reliable basis of lasting fulfillment. The solution is to come to peace with the inherent incapacity of experience to be reliably, stably, fulfilling, and satisfying. Whew. How do we do that? <laughs> I think it's to recognize, and he taught this, again and again and again. First, it is incapable of reliable, stable satisfaction in the deepest sense. And second, that's okay. It's okay. We can still be at peace. We can still be loving. We can still be happy. He was loving. He was at peace. He was at happy. So were the people he taught. So are my own teachers. 
it takes a certain insight into the nature of experience and a tracking, a mindfulness of some of these subtleties. But if we increasingly lighten up, as it were, about the transient uh, nature of experience and we don't sit at the edge of the waterfalls, experience streams by, constantly trying to grab it and hold on to it and keep the good stuff, right? If we relax there at the waterfall and just go, holy moly, as it all streams on through, suddenly we feel a lot happier, don't we? And we're a lot kinder to other people. I think of the line from the third uh, Zen patriarch. This is the teaching that starts, the great way is easy for one with no preferences. And in there is this amazing line. He says, enlightenment is no anxiety but imperfection. That's the same thing here. We develop over time no anxiety about imperfection. It's all just streaming along, and that's okay. We come to peace with that. So, moving to a wrap here, I think it's easy to get complicated, obviously, about what I've talked about. I made a choice here. What the heck? It's the first night. I'll just lay it out. Um, the thing to just kind of be aware of from time to time is, whoa, more or less craving. If there's a sense of tension or pressure or drivenness or lack or unsettledness, that's kind of a clue, more craving. right? And also, what is it like to have those many moments that are right under our nose where there's very little or no craving at all? We're just sitting there. The hand reaches for the salt comes back, it's fine. We're engaged with life. You know, it's a little too warm, we take off a sweater, we feel safer. Um, Other people are getting a little too close physically, we kind of move our zafu to the side, it's fine. Not a deal. We hardly notice those, because they're right under our noses. So mindfulness of that. And then, without trying to grab it, looking for those opportunities in which there are wholesome experiences of safety, satisfaction, and connection, peace, contentment, and love, and really receiving them with an intimacy with them, helping the little lizard, the little mouse, and the little monkey come home again. So I'd like to leave you with a quote from the Buddha, and then we could sit for a minute or two, and I'll ring the bell, and then we'll have some walking meditation. And we can, of course, talk about this a bit more in the morning, and I'll do a guided practice with you in the morning that I use for myself of opening to, authentically, peace, contentment, and love as a foundational practice. So here's the quote. He says, to avoid all evil, to cultivate good, to purify the mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. To avoid evil, to cultivate good, and to purify the mind. The teaching of the Buddhas.
So let's sit for a minute here. Time for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.